I want to do three things with episode 10. First, I want to lay out everything we have found out so far in a single episode. Having this compiled together will give us a better understanding of just how much circumstantial evidence there is that points in one direction. The second thing I want to drive home is the fact that all of this happened in roughly a two-month time frame. From sometime in January to early March 2001 is what we're talking about here. This had to have been a whirlwind for Johnny and Bethany to live this. It was one thing after another. And the last thing I want to shine some light on is this. There was a reason why Johnny and Lori were so perceptive about the exact times that certain things happened in 2001. Apparently everyone, including Bethany herself, had an uneasy feeling about this second visitation with Larry. So let's take a look at all the things that transpired in just two months in 2001. I'm Brandon Barnett, and this is Searching for Ghosts. Season 2, Where is Bethany Markowski? Sometime in January 2001, Johnny and Bethany escaped from Larry and fled to Nashville. And his kids used to always tell me, you know, what are you going to do when Dad starts hitting Bethany? You know he's going to. You know he's going to. He had started hitting Bethany. He had a hammer and, uh, you know, was hitting the step beside my head. And for the first time in ever, I just stared at him. I didn't even cry. I just, all I kept thinking was I stayed too long. I stayed too long. Pure, stinking fear. Just scared to leave and scared to stay. That morning, everything fell into place. When the door and had her back, and she said, Are we leaving, Daddy? She, she yelled across the parking lot. So I'm standing at the car screaming, Get in the car! Get in the car! Just went to Jackson, ironically, to the mall for my sister and my brother-in-law, Larry, to pick us up. Uh, I left my car at the mall, abandoned my car in the overflow parking. On January 30th, Johnny filed for divorce and child support. One day later, on the 31st of January, Larry Markowski traveled to Nashville to try to take Bethany from her school. Before she had time to get to work, um, I had gotten a phone call from the principal at, at the school Bethany was, had just started. And uh, she said, um, you know, Bethany's father's here and we have to let him have her. Talking, to, She's talking to the principal on your cell phone and she's telling us, don't come in yet, something's going on. It was crazy. You heard desks being pushed around. You heard a scream, um, and a lot of yelling during that time. In a typed letter dated March 28, 2001, Miss Sloan gives her account of what happened that day. Quote, On January 31, 2001, Larry Markowski came into my classroom without permission from the office. His daughter Bethany and I were in the room. I had been warned that he might come and try to take her. I asked if I could help him, and he said he had come to talk to his daughter. I asked if he had permission from the office to be up here. He said he did. 
Bethany started crying and saying she couldn't go with him. It was obvious to me that she was frightened. I asked him to go downstairs and they could get this straightened out and then he could possibly see her. He would not leave. He then took her by the arm and started quickly taking her from the room, pushing me aside. Realized then that he wasn't Bethany, he was after. He was long Tommy, and he just went all right about it. So anyway, we ended up coming back home with really a tail tucked between our legs because cops just about put us in jail up there. And that is when the restraining order was filed, within minutes. We called uh, Bradbury, your uh, lawyer, and uh, they uh, interrupted court, mm-hmm. you know, there. What, what town is that, Gleason? Is that Gleason. Gleason. Mm-hmm. And uh, because we we needed him not to be able to take her. So he they worked really hard within like 30 minutes. They had something signed by a judge right. and faxed it over saying he could not take her. That, you know, that this is it, everything stops, just mm-hmm. to stop the madness. Because at that point, he could have. Right. And we were trying real hard to, for that to not happen. The order read in part as follows, quote, Therefore, it is the order of this court that the defendant, Larry Joe Markowski, is hereby restrained from interfering with the custody of the minor child, Bethany Markowski, which custody is granted to the plaintiff, Johnny Markowski. It is further the order of this court that the defendant is restrained from coming about in any way interfering with the life of the plaintiff, unquote. February, visitation arrangements were made with Larry getting unsupervised visitation starting the weekend of February 17th. The official stamp on the paperwork was February 26, 2001. Also on February 26, a title transfer into Larry Markowski's name was recorded for a 1995 Chevy Astro van. Friday, March 2nd was the second visitation. Larry had reportedly made plans with Bethany concerning Christina, but didn't follow through. He also canceled plans with Jenny concerning Nashville. He then took Bethany to Little Rock, Arkansas. Well, I didn't even know nothing about skating. I just, that's just something new to me that I learned yesterday. I was like, well, I never knew I was supposed to go skating with her. We had plans, me and my ex-boyfriend, we had planned on staying with him that weekend. Um, we were going to... You know, we took off work. We were going to wake up early that morning and ride with him to get Bethany. Um, we were supposed to have spent the weekend in Nashville with Bethany, um, you know, going up there with Larry, uh, looking for an apartment to stay at. Um, he had told us that, you know, got, got this idea in our head that if, if we moved there, uh, we could be closer to Bethany. Woke up that morning and he was uh, selling the furniture out of the house. I asked him what, we, what he was doing, and he said, you know, we are just selling the furniture. You know, if we're moving to Nashville, we don't, in an apartment, we don't need all that furniture. One weekend, while, you know, he was getting to see her, I told him, I said, well, Larry, uh, I said, why don't you come out here, stay the weekend with us, go to church with us Sunday. I said, these people out here are happy. And there was a girl there by the name of Sherry Dickens. She was kind of interested in meeting him. He came in on a Friday night. We stayed up and talked. 
On Saturday, March 3rd, Larry left Little Rock abruptly, but according to Harold Roberts, not before making a bold and chilling statement. I was noticing things that Larry wasn't letting him around his side. It was, it was kind of, after looking back at it, it was kind of like she was, he was afraid she was going to tell us something that he didn't want us to know. Right. Well, that night, which was Saturday night, we had a little cookout there at the house. And a bunch of people came over from the church. We got around the piano. We were singing songs, playing piano, playing guitars, singing gospel music. And then all of a sudden, he just jumped up and said, I'm going home. Just right out of the blue. I'm going to take my band down to uh, Mexico. You come down and get it. You have it. It'd be yours. It's nice band, Harold. I dismissed that and told him not to do it. And that was the end of it. He never brought it back up again until he got ready to leave. When he walked up the door, not only did I hear this, but everybody that was in that house heard this. When he walked out the door, he said, I'll be calling you and telling you where to come and get the band. So you go on home and quit that talk. That's what I, that's what I told you. In the early morning hours of March 4th, Harold received a phone call from Larry. But according to Harold, Larry's whereabouts were sketchy. Well, I got a phone call at 1.30 in the morning, going back to that. And uh, he said that he was uh, close to Memphis. So I said, well, you, you've had time to be home, Larry. I said, it's been four hours, four to four and a half. Yeah. I said, you've had time to be all the way home. I said, where are you at? And he told me he was in uh, Four City, uh, Clayton Goldsmith. He's an FBI agent in Tennessee that was involved in this. And then we had one out there in Little Rock that was involved in it. They told me more about the case than anybody ever had. When they traced his phone call that he had supposedly called me from Four City, uh-huh. got pinged off of the land between the lakes. There is a 12 to 12 and a half hour gap from March 3rd to March 4th, where Larry and Bethany's whereabouts are unknown. They reportedly made it to the Gleason home around 9 a.m. on March 4th. When looking at Jackson Sun articles trying to piece together a timeline, I could never find anything that indicated when Larry said he arrived in Gleason. The statements from law enforcement were always vague, but Johnny has a missing persons flyer of Bethany from the Jackson Police Department. The flyer states that Larry and Bethany made it home to Gleason at 9 a.m. that Sunday morning. With this, we now have a block of time within 30 minutes that Larry left Little Rock and made it to Gleason, 8.30 or 9 p.m. on Saturday night to 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. That's a 12 to 12 and a half hour span. It's only a four to four and a half hour trip from Little Rock to Gleason. This begs the question, where in the hell was Larry in that 12-hour time frame? Bethany made a phone call to Johnny from the Gleason home at 9.38 a.m. Then it appears that they visited Christina. Next is the alleged stop at Milan. The day that Bethany um, disappeared, I got a phone call from her, I think it was like 9.38 in the morning, and the caller ID popped up that it was coming from our house in Gleason, Tennessee. Law enforcement and TBI have the phone records to confirm that the call did take place. Bethany was upset, and it sounded like that she was on speakerphone 
And I could hear Larry in the background hollering and screaming, tell her, tell her. And Bethany said, Mama, um, Daddy knows you have a, a boyfriend. And I was like, what? I, I don't know what you're talking about. And she said, Daddy knows you have a boyfriend because I talked to him on the phone. And I just, I asked her, I said, why, why are you lying? And I said, never mind. I could hear, you know, Larry Markowski hollering in the background. And Bethany's little voice was shaking and I could tell she was upset. And I said, that's okay, that's okay. Bethany and her dad showed up to my house on a Sunday and she was supposed to be headed back to her mama's house. And she, uh, she, to me, she seemed not herself. And I kept asking her what was wrong and she kept brushing me off, uh, saying, look at my new phone. I got a new phone. I was like, well, where'd you get your new phone from? And she said, my dad wanted it. After I talked to Bethany that morning, Apparently, they stopped in uh, Gleason and talked to one of Bethany's friends, Christina, that she was supposed to have gone skating with that Friday. And then um, Larry said that he had taken Bethany to get something to eat at McDonald's. And then they had stopped in Milan for a little while, I guess, maybe for about an hour or so. And um, apparently, they sat in front of my ex-employer's house for a while with uh, Larry telling uh, Bethany that this is your mom's boyfriend's house. And then supposedly they went from there to, um, to Jackson that day. Jenny Markowski talked to Bethany over the phone at 12, 12 p.m. The cell ping came from an unlikely place. And then a witness reportedly saw Larry without Bethany at 2.30 p.m. when he should have been at the mall. Sunday, when I called his phone, I don't remember what time, but I know I talked to Bethany, and uh, she told me they had just left the house in Gleason. When Jenny did call, the cell tower that his cell phone pinged off of was... This was at May, around... Around 12, 12.15, was... Um, further east than he should have been. That cell tower ping, and they the, every time I started talking to Jenny, they would say, don't tell her what time she called her dad, because she kept keeps asking them, well, what time was it that I talked to my dad? And they're like, don't tell her. I was like, okay. So finally, a couple of years ago, she said, I just, I said, it was 12-12, Jenny. You <laughs> talked to him at 12-12 and 32 seconds. And like the alleged land between the lakes ping from the Forest City call, the Jenny call pinged off a tower in another forestry area, Natchez Trace State Park. The father's phone was east of Jackson. To be more specific, it's, it's pretty hard to do. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I question, well, if you were already east of Jackson, going toward 143, why did you come back the yeah. mall? And he said, that's because she wanted to. At 2.30, he's putting gas in his van at Parker's Crossroads. How long would it take him from Parker's Crossroad to get to the mall, Jackson Mall? Yeah. Those lights. So that's roughly another 30-minute 30, 30 trip. This guy that said I, he saw him at 2.30 called him back and said, how could somebody pull, I just dropped my daughter off in Nashville at her mom's house, their butt. When they hadn't seen him in months because we hadn't been driving an 18-wheeler. Okay. In 
Larry's cell phone didn't ping anywhere from the 1212 call to when Lori finally reached him at 5.43 p.m. I have a clock on the dot. Um, my cell phone rang. It was Johnny. And I was like, she said, is he there? And I said, no, he's not there. Or he's not here. I said, but let's give him a few minutes. Maybe there's traffic. Maybe there's a wreck. You know, maybe he's just running a little bit late. You know, I said, let's just, let's just give him 15 minutes and see what happens. So as soon as I hung up from talking to her, I started calling his cell phone. And uh, it was going straight to voicemail every time. I called his cell phone just constantly back, just kept calling and calling, calling, calling. Actually, in between, I called Johnny at one point, too, to let her know I'm trying to call his cell phone. He's not answering. Or, well, not that he wasn't answering. It was going straight to voicemail like it was off. And um, so at 545... Um, 5.43, I don't know, I was watching, we were watching the clock, just like every minute, it just seemed to last forever, and um, I think it was like 5.43, I called and he answered, and I said, Larry, I said, where are you, we were here waiting for you, and he said, uh, he said, well, and I said, why are you not answering your phone, and he said, why, well, I had it, uh, I was charging it in my van, and I said, well, it, it, it was going straight to voicemail, like it's on, but then they said that he, Evidently turned it after that phone call. His phone didn't ping anywhere until it came back on at 5:45. Is so. that when you talked to him? Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is when we get into the multiple timelines concerning the mall. Just as with articles I would find about Casey McDaniel, every article from that week has a slightly different timeline. I didn't know if this was reporter error because a different reporter was responsible for each story that week. Okay, so in the March 6th report, we have Bethany last seen at 2.30 p.m. We have Larry awaking at 3.30. He goes in to look for her for almost two hours before notifying security at 5.15. Jackson police were notified at 6.05, almost an hour after mall security was alerted. He woke up about 4.30 to go get her, which wouldn't make any sense because he was supposed to meet us at 5, and so that didn't make any sense, and I'm like, well... Well, no, there are definitely anomalies to the timeline. There are some contradictions in a timeline, uh, but as far as specifics, I'm not real comfortable going into that. Okay. He told uh, Sergeant Staples that um, he said he's changed his story at least five times since we've been here. Because the uh, police showed up at the mall. brings us to whether or not Bethany even made it to the mall, and the curious story about Hillary, which reportedly came from Larry himself. We didn't find any corroboration that she was ever at the mall, and, and that is, you know, that's it. we looked at the cameras the stores had, and, uh, you know, talking with people in the mall and everything, we didn't have anybody that remembered seeing her. Well, the thing that still sticks with me is the fact that, uh, you know, she was reported missing at the mall in Jackson, Tennessee, and there was absolutely no evidence ever found that she was ever at the Jackson Mall. Right. Uh, so that's that's the thing that just rings to me to be where the where the lies started in my opinion. Right. Uh, and from there, uh, there's some things that uh, that I can't discuss that contradict that. He said about 1.30 or 2 o'clock, I think he said he let Bethany go in the mall. She was um, going to meet her little friend, Hillary. 
and I don't, I don't know who Hillary is. I still don't know who Hillary is to this day. But, um, and so I, I was like, I said, who's Hillary? He said, it's her little friend that she knew here from Jackson. In a letter dated March 6, 2001, from the law office of James H. Bradbury to Sergeant Hutchins of the Jackson Police Department, Darlene recounts the story about Hillary. Quote, I asked Mrs. Markowski what his, Mr. Markowski's cell number was, and she gave it to me. I called him immediately to see if we could help. I asked what happened. He told me that she was meeting a friend, Hillary, and that they were going to Claire's to shop for a hair something. He just didn't know what happened, and that when he woke from his nap, she was not there. Unquote. I her and him in the mall, and Hillary ran up and said, where's Bethany? And he said, I don't know, I'm looking for her. So... That's the only way Hillary was involved with that story. Hillary never saw Bethany. We, we saw Larry walking up, and he, he looked all weird. He had, like, sunglasses on in the mall, and he had dyed his hair jet black. And uh, he, was all, he was walking around with a security officer, freaking out, you know, saying he couldn't find Bethany. And I, I, you know, I was like, well, I hope you look for her. We walked around, you know, figured we'd just run into each other. I want to say I remember him trying to say at one point or another, yeah, that me and her were hanging out in the mall. But I only heard it come up like that, you know, back then when it all first happened. I don't think, I, I you know, nobody ever really read into it because, you know, it wasn't true. And of course, there's Larry's alleged demeanor while being questioned that night. And they were really irritated with him because they couldn't keep him awake. He kept falling asleep. He said, you guys are in here just crying and carrying on. He said, and he, I can't even keep him awake. And um, actually, he basically said, you know, every time I come in here, y'all are praying or crying or talking. And he said, and I've had to wake that asshole up three times to ask him questions, you know. So I just don't understand how somebody could sleep at a time like this. And this brings us to the TBI. So I think it was like nine days into Bethany missing, uh, they had called the TBI and said, hey, could you run uh, some cell phone records for me? I'm thinking it was nine days okay. after her disappearance is when TBI first got involved in the case. Okay. I was told by Valerie Trout, Bethany's TBI agent, that once the TBI got involved, they did get uh, Larry Markowski's van and they did a, a forensic spray on it. Um, there were a few things that they did pull out of the van that did have some blood spots on them, some little blood black splatter, little blood droppings, and that was a blanket and a pillowcase. I know Valerie said that one of the questions they asked before they searched Larry Markowski's van is would there be any reason we would find Bethany's blood in the van? And he came across and said yes that she had set on a thorn so that um and with that we are up to speed this is everything that we have covered so far in season two of searching for ghosts these events happened in just a two-month time frame but there is something that we haven't covered that had everyone on edge about this particular visitation. This was the incident that caused Johnny to break down during her polygraph test. So in the custody, I was primary. He got to get her every other weekend from Friday at 
five or six till Sunday at five or five or six. Uh, he got to call her from what seven to nine on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And Tuesdays and Thursdays were really rough in, in the house. Um, the phone would ring, and I mean, you would have to call her and get her out of a closet. Or I mean, she hated. She was so nervous because it wasn't like I'm excited to talk to you, Bethany. It was, you know, kind of like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to kill me? You're killing me. Do you know you're killing me? Well, I actually listened in on those calls. She wouldn't she talk wouldn't, to her. She wouldn't talk on, you know, he. she wouldn't talk on the phone unless uh, myself or my uh, husband were listening. And, uh, and those were the kind of conversations. And it, one, of the con- one of the times that he called, you know, he was just doing this screaming crying thing you're killing me bethany is that what you want to do you want to kill me and of course he's crying and screaming and i told him i said all right that's enough i said why don't you compose yourself and call back you know you're not going to do this you know she's 11 years old just turned 11 and um so that that i think that was just one of the calls i had to do that but here's nita johnny and Lori's mother and bethany's grandmother i don't know Got in bed with me that night before and was telling me, I don't want to go, you know. And I, I was trying to tell her how much fun she's going to have. <laughs> oh, it's going to be fun. You're going to enjoy it. And she said, what if he don't bring you back? It's like mm-hmm. he said. I said, he has to. There's no way. I said, if he don't want to bring you back, we'll come and get you. And then she said, I remember last time she said to you, I know, that's okay. She said, I know everybody's phone numbers anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Like that Thursday night, she were in the closet, and she's like, I don't want to go. I said, Bethany, you don't understand. If I don't make you go, I will go to jail, and you'll have to go anyway. It's going to be okay. We will come and get you. He's going to bring you back. It's the law. He has to. If he doesn't, he's breaking the law. He'll go to jail. Nobody's gone to jail. I have to try to keep my emotions in check when producing this podcast. Otherwise, I won't be any good to anyone. But I can't help but get emotional as I wonder what was going through Bethany's head during this weekend. I tear up, and then I get angry. Did she hear the threats of Mexico? We know she was supposedly used for Larry's allegations about Johnny's supposed boyfriend. And what about that 12 hours between Little Rock and Gleason? All of these suspicious activities that Larry was allegedly involved in, Bethany was a witness to. That poor little girl. If you have any information about Bethany Markowski, no matter how small you think it is, call 1-800-THE-LOST. I would like to invite you to Lebanon, Tennessee on Sunday, March 4th, 2018. March 4th, as you know, is the date of Bethany Markowski's disappearance, and it is now recognized by the state of Tennessee as Tennessee Missing Children's Day. There will be a candlelight vigil and a balloon release to bring awareness to all missing children in Tennessee. There will also be free kids' fingerprint kits for all children in attendance. I would love to see friends of both Casey and Bethany there, as well as anyone else who wants to bring awareness to Tennessee's missing sons and daughters. I will have a link with the full details in the show notes. Hey guys, Brandon here. Want to support Searching for Ghosts and look cool doing it? Well, now you can, and just in time for Christmas. The SFG store is up and running. We have three designs to choose from, 
including the tree shirt that was inspired by the leaning tree from my front yard that was featured in the season one cover art. We have multiple colors to choose from, t-shirts for men and women, and hoodies. I'll have the link in the show notes of this episode. You can also find the store at the top of the Searching for Ghosts Facebook page. Your support will help us keep SFG going. Thanks, guys.